Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me. On today's episode, we'll talk about the difference between mortal and venial sin, and then we'll end with this this great teaching on the seven capital sins or the seven deadly sins, and then there's seven medicines. So funny that I talk about the seven deadly sins as this great teaching, but um, it comes from, I've, I've referenced my uh, priest friend, Father Matt Guckin, a number of times on this podcast where he and I taught together at one of the archdiocesan high schools. And when we would take the seniors on Kairos retreats, he would give really just this great talk um, about the seven deadly sins and then what he referred to as their seven medicines. So we'll talk today about how sin wounds our human nature. And so these medicines of generosity, chastity, etc., help to heal the wounds of the seven capital sins. So I was looking for Father Matt is, um, he, he's, all, I don't know about all over the internet, but he has a good internet presence. And so I was kind of searching for his teaching, whether in an article or maybe a YouTube video he did. I couldn't find anything. So I texted him. I was like, hey, could you, um, you know, point me in the direction of your teaching on the seven deadly sins? Um, I'd like to, you know, reference it on my podcast. He goes, I'll do you one better. I'll just write it right here. So he texts me the, the mini lesson. So we'll um, end with with that, what I think is a really cool teaching. And then um, just to start, I just want to kind of hit on three miscellaneous paragraphs, and then we'll get into mortal versus venial sin. So on the second half of the episode today, we'll cover paragraphs 1833 through 1876. So I'm going to look at paragraph 1834, bum, ba, da, bum. Which says, so we begin um, on the reading selection on the second half of the episode is actually the in brief from last week's discussion. So if you're looking at a physical catechism, you'll see. And if you're not looking at a physical catechism, um, I'll just remind you that at the end of kind of chunks of teachings throughout the catechisms, throughout the catechism, there's this in brief section or there are these in brief sections, which just like kind of quickly sum up all that was just discussed. So I didn't include it on last week's episode because it would have made the episode extra long. So we begin with this in brief on last week's discussion. So paragraph 1834, talking about the human virtues, says, the human virtues are stable dispositions of the intellect and the will that govern our acts, order our passions, and guide our conduct in accordance with reason and faith. So the human virtues are stable dispositions. And I want to point that out, again, to dispel this understanding of conscience as being like a little angel on one shoulder, a little devil on the other. And it's like with each difficult situation we encounter, like who will win, the angel or the devil? To whom are we going to listen? Mm, We'll find out. Um, When in reality, uh, forming and following our consciences, living and striving to live more deeply, richly, beautifully, profoundly, the virtuous moral life Um, is something that, God willing, by the grace of God and by our human effort, establishes stable dispositions in us such that when we're then in those moments of like, oh, gosh, what should I do? Uh, We can draw from a wellspring, a foundation, a library, a bank, a resource within us that um, has been, you know, built up by the grace of God, by the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, by the gifts and graces of the sacraments of our daily prayer life, um, 
but it's also been built up and strengthened by our work, our perseverance, our discipline, um, basically like putting in the time, doing the hard work so that when we encounter that moment of what should I do or knowing what we should do and having to make the difficult decisions, we, we often, I'll just speak for myself, often I know the truth with my intellect, but it's hard for me to choose the good with my free will. It's like, ah, this is going to be painful or uncomfortable or like, meh, I'd just rather stay in the lazy, warm, comfy spot. Um, and so as we grow in the virtuous life, as we put in that time and that work, and then encounter difficult situations, it's like, ah, it becomes second nature. It becomes easier to do the good. Okay, so the the virtues um, become, by the grace of God and by our human effort, stable dispositions. I also want to point out paragraph 1847, which says, God created us without us, but he did not will to save us without us. So that quote comes from St. Augustine. How beautiful. God created us without us. So God did not ask my permission to create me, but he did not will to save me without me. So God wants me to cooperate, participate in my own salvation. And then the catechism goes on to say, to receive his mercy, we must admit our faults. So in order to be open to receive his mercy and forgiveness, and this is getting into uh, today's discussion on sin and specifically mercy and sin, uh, we must admit our faults. So if we, let's say we live in a time where nobody recognizes sin as a thing anymore. It's like, do what you want to do. It's all good. Don't tell me what I'm doing is wrong. Um, If there's no sin, then there's no need for a savior nor forgiveness. Um, But intuitively, whether we recognize it intellectually or not, we, we feel that that something's amiss. Something's really amiss in the world and something's really amiss within my own heart, mind, and life. And so if I can place that before the Lord, uh, God, I'm on the wrong track. I've been doing, I continue to do, as St. Paul says, I do what I do not do not want to do. Um, I, if I can place that before the Lord, then he can offer me his mercy and forgiveness. If not, if I'm, if I'm floating through life saying like, it's all good, no big deal. Um, then God's like, okay, what am I doing here? Like, what do you need from me? So to receive his mercy, we must admit our faults. God respects our free will and wants to offer us that love, forgiveness, and mercy, but he won't if we don't open ourselves up to receive it, if we don't put our sins before him and ask for his mercy and forgiveness. Uh, That same paragraph goes on to say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that comes from the first letter of St. John, verses 8 through 9. So may we not deceive ourselves, but put it all before the Lord, because in doing so, we receive his, his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, and his freedom. Okay, last kind of random paragraph I want to point to is paragraph 1851, which says, So it's precisely in the passion when the mercy of Christ is about to vanquish it, sin, that sin most clearly manifests its violence and its many forms. Unbelief, murderous hatred, shunning and mockery by the leaders and the people, Pilate's cowardice and the cruelty of the soldiers, Judas's betrayal, so bitter to Jesus, Peter's denial and the disciples' flight. So we can pause there for a moment and think, dang, God really took on everything, like not just the pain of 
the excruciating pain of the carrying of the cross, the crowning with thorns, um, the driving of those, you know, those stakes into his hands and his feet, the scourging at the pillar. But he takes on every other dimension of human suffering. So being rejected uh, openly by powerful figures, uh, both political or, um, what do you say, like civic and religious, and by his nearest and dearest, um, being misunderstood, betrayed, denied. Jesus has experienced it all. So um, one of the many beautiful messages for us in that is that there's not a moment of our lives with which God cannot identify because he has walked it every single step. And so if and when we feel those moments of, of loneliness, despair, depression, anxiety, um, just anything, we're, we're beating ourselves up for things that we've done or things that we've left undone, we can bring it to the Lord because he has walked that as well. He did not leave, let me clarify, he did not leave anything undone. So when I say we beat ourselves up for things we've done and and left undone, um, Christ walked every step that we have walked with the exception of sin. He did not sin. And so he can be with us in that moment and offer us God who is outside of time and space, can be with us in that moment and offer us comfort, healing, forgiveness, mercy. So come Lord Jesus, be with us every moment of our lives and give us the grace to welcome you into every moment of our lives. Um, So it goes on to say, however, at the very hour of darkness, the hour of the prince of this world, the sacrifice of Christ secretly becomes the source from which the forgiveness of our sins will pour forth inexhaustibly. And that word inexhaustibly is just so good. Uh, Christ so the, the sacrifice of Christ secretly becomes the source from which the forgiveness of our sins will pour forth inexhaustibly. So I like, um, I like that wording, uh, it secretly becomes the source. Uh, I, again, there's, there's so many wonderful things to, to think about and pray with when it comes to God and all that he has done, is doing, and will continue to do for us. And, and one of them, one of the things upon which I love to reflect is the humility of God, how um, you know he could have come to earth and on a, a shining cloud and amidst bolts of lightning and, and thunder so that it was unmistakable to every human being on earth, like, this is God, he's powerful, he's awesome, bow down to him. But instead, what does he do? He's born in obscurity, you know, in in the small little corner of the world in a dirty little manger after his mom and dad have been rejected again and again by the innkeeper. And so he, he continues to, to come into our lives and to come into situations that way in a, a very secret, humble, hidden way. And I find it almost to be like um, like kind of a, a challenge or an invitation, like, hey, can you be small enough? Can you be humble enough? Can you be quiet enough to find me, to see where I'm coming in and to stop and listen to what I'm saying to you? And then what he says to us, what he offers to us is inexhaustible. So the source from which the forgiveness of our sins will pour forth inexhaustibly. God never tires of forgiving us. Um, There's nothing we can do with the exception of one thing, which we'll talk about, um, that will will keep the love and mercy and forgiveness of God from us. Um, So I was recently talking with a friend who I was just a little intimidated by confession and um, was saying like, Eh. This friend is is a a church-going Catholic, um, but has has stayed away from the sacrament of confession for a bit because it's just like kind of awkward and uh, intellectually is like, why, you know, 
a little questionable. Like, why do we go to these priests whom we don't know and tell them our deepest, darkest secrets? And um, so I was just encouraging this friend, like, there's nothing you can say that will shock or um, revile, the, well, maybe revile the priest, but there, there's nothing that they haven't heard. And there's nothing when it comes to God that, first of all, he knows everything we've said and done and left undone. Um, but there's nothing we can do, say for one thing, to keep that love and mercy and forgiveness away. His, his forgiveness and mercy and love is inexhaustible. So there is, there's no exhausting it. And um, let's, go, let's go after it. Let's get it. So this brings us then to our discussion of distinguishing mortal and venial sin. Paragraph 1853 says, sins can be distinguished according to their objects. So recall from a few episodes ago, we talked about the ingredients of moral acts. They are the object, the what, what am I doing? The intention or the why, why am I doing this? And then the circumstances, the where, when, how, etc. So sins can be distinguished according to their objects, the what that a person is doing, as can every human act or according to the virtues they oppose by excess or defect, or according to the commandments they violate. They can also be classed according to whether they concern God, neighbor, or oneself. They can be divided into spiritual and carnal sins, or again as sins in thought, word, deed, or mission. The root of sin is in the heart of man, in his free will, according to the teaching of the Lord, who says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a man. But in the heart also resides charity, the source of the good and pure works which sin wounds. So why distinguish sins according to all these different criteria? It seems the cardinals and bishops were just sitting around and liked making lists. No. Um, We do this, the church does this, to help us understand intellectually as rational human beings, why uh, certain acts are wrong and how they hurt us, hurt God, and hurt our relationship with others. So as, as human beings with rational intellects and free wills, um, if we can come to know and understand why what we're doing is wrong, it can help us, by the grace of God, repent of that and then strive for the virtues that work against that or help us pull away from that, that tendency, that vice, etc., there's that line right in the middle that says, the root of sin is in the heart of man in his free will according to the teaching of the Lord. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, etc., etc. Um, the same uh, friend that whom I reference, Father Matt, he said one time, and maybe I said this on a previous episode, he said, uh, given the right circumstances, I am capable of anything. So given the right circumstances, if I had maybe just a little more money or maybe if I hadn't said yes to the priesthood or maybe if I lived in a different part of the world or I had met a different best friend when I were younger or, you know, any number of things, I might not be where I am today because I might have chosen otherwise and it is therefore by the grace of God that I am where I am today. And I just think that's such a a great, speaking of humility, such a great humble approach to life um, and such a great reminder so that we don't, um, again, speak for myself, so that I don't get on my high horse and say like, look look how great I am, look how much I love the Lord and his teachings and how much I go to Mass. Um, Had I, I, I've talked about how wonderful my parents are a number of times, had I been born into a different family, um, who maybe I 
were entrusted to parents who weren't Catholic or who were Catholic but did not teach me the Catholic faith or any number of things, I might have landed very differently. I might have chosen otherwise. And um, therefore, it's by the grace of God that I am where I am today. And so this line in the, the middle of paragraph 1853, the root of sin is in the heart of man, points to the fact that um, when, when I sin, it's coming from myself. The the circumstances, the, um, I don't know, other things at play might affect that. But when I sin, that's on me, and I need to bring that before the Lord. This then, I think, helps answer the question, like, you know, why does it feel like God doesn't answer my prayers sometimes or all the time? Um, sometimes we just don't know uh, how we would be if all of our prayers were answered exactly as we desire them to be answered. So, you know, whether it's for a specific job or a certain relationship to work out or um, any number of things, if those prayers are answered in the way we think best, uh, it might lead us to another spot in life where we then choose against God or against the good. Um, And so God could be protecting us. God is protecting us from potentially harmful situations, situations that are harmful to our souls. So thank God, as the the, uh, old country song goes, thank God for unanswered prayers. All right, paragraphs 1854 and 1855 go on to describe the difference between mortal and venial sin. Sins are rightly evaluated according to their gravity. The distinction between mortal and venial sin, already evident in scripture, became part of the tradition of the church. It is corroborated by human experience. Okay, so this isn't just like heady intellectual stuff that the church passes on year after year, but it's corroborated by human experience. We, we intuitively feel the difference between uh, murder and, you know, uh, robbing the, whatever, convenience store of a I was going to say a 10 cent pack of gum, but gum is not 10 cents anymore. A $1.19 pack of gum. Um, So intuitively, we know, it's corroborated by human experience, that there are different degrees when it comes to sin. Paragraph 1855 goes on to say, Mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God, who is his ultimate end and his beatitude, by preferring an inferior good to him. Venial sin allows charity to subsist, even though it offends and wounds it. Okay, so mortal sin. Um, I think when I first started teaching this, Mortal Kombat was a very popular video game at the time. Um, so it was like a you know combat or fight to the death. So mortal sin implies a death. There's a death of charity. We cut ourselves off uh, from God, who is the source of life. Whereas venial sin wounds that charity, it harms that relationship, we're limping along, uh, but it doesn't completely destroy it. Paragraph 1857 then uh, illustrates, excuse me, describes the three conditions which must be in place for a sin to be considered mortal. So 1857 says, for a sin to be mortal, three conditions must together be met. Mortal sin is sin whose object, so again, that's the what that a person is doing, is grave matter, so it's serious, and which is also committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent. So for a sin to be considered mortal, I need, I need to be doing something serious. So it's something that seriously harms myself, my relationship with God, my relationship with others. Um, I'm doing something serious. And I need to um, be fully aware of what I'm doing and that it's wrong. 
and I need to be fully consenting to it. So no one or nothing is is forcing me to do it. So no one's, you know, forcing me to do this action, whatever it is, or I'm not under the influence of um, of alcohol or of fear or of extreme duress, you know, for whatever reason. So I'm doing something serious. I know that I'm doing something serious and I'm fully choosing it of my own accord. Those three things need to be in place for sin to be considered mortal. So 1858 uh, hones in on grave matter. Grave matter is specified by the Ten Commandments corresponding to the answer of Jesus to the rich young man. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. The gravity of sins is more or less great. Murder is graver than theft. One must also take into account who is wronged. Violence against parents is in itself graver or more serious than violence against a stranger. So we're in part three, section one of the catechism. In section two, we specifically go through each of the Ten Commandments and um, all the, well, not all the implications, many of the implications of each of the commandments. So the, the catechism lays out for us very plainly here that grave matter involves violating one or more than one of the Ten Commandments. Um, when it comes to kind of like modern things, so, um, you know, at the time the catechism was written, we had things like contraception and IVF, et cetera. Um, but I, I had students over the years say like, well, how do you know, you know, um, Miss Pine, that that Jesus was against, um, or, you know, why is the church against abortion now when there was no Planned Parenthood at the time of Jesus? Or how do we know now that like we shouldn't use the birth control pill when that wasn't invented at the time of Jesus? Is the church just making this stuff up? And as we'll see in part three, section two, each of the Ten Commandments, the the commandment is, um, how do I say, like a bold, kind of clear topic, and then um, from scripture, tradition, and then the, the corroboration of human experience, um, we know kind of what flows from each of those commandments. Paragraph 1859 goes on to say, mortal sin requires full knowledge and complete consent. It presupposes knowledge of the sinful character of the act, of its opposition to God's law. So full knowledge implies that I know what I'm doing is wrong and is against uh, God's commands. It also implies a consent sufficiently deliberate to be a personal choice. So I am choosing it of my own accord. No one or nothing is forcing me. Feigned ignorance and hardness of heart do not diminish, but rather increase the voluntary character of a sin. So if I pretend that I don't know that this is wrong, or I pretend that someone or something is kind of like influencing me or forcing me to do this, um, that doesn't diminish my culpability, but it actually makes it more so. It makes it worse. So this makes me think of, and I've mentioned this before, um, year after year, you know, my students, a number of my students were shocked to find out that missing mass on Sunday was a mortal sin. And, um, you know, I would tell them, like, where we get this from scripture and tradition and why it makes sense that not talking to God for over a week is a big deal. Um, they would then kind of, like, come to the resolution, like, oh, shoot, especially after we talked about mortal versus venial sin. Like, now I'm responsible for this because I know that missing Matt before I didn't know. And I think I would tell them that as part of, like, the lesson and a consolation to them, like, guys, you didn't know, so you were not responsible. You were invincibly ignorant uh, because you didn't know missing mass was a mortal sin. Um, but now you know, 
And so then you hear that like half the class groan, like, oh, now I have to go to mass or else it's a mortal sin. And I would try to steer them back to like, God's not out to get you. The church is not trying to just give you these random rules. But these are, these are guideposts. These are like security rails, bumpers on your bowling alley to get you to, um, what is it, a strike? Spares when I think one is left. So to get you to the strike, to get you to the win of this this bowling game of life, um, God through the church, God and the church want you to be happy. And so God commands us to keep holy the Sabbath, to come to Mass every Sunday, because um, we are made to be in communion with Him, to worship Him, to talk to Him, to listen to His Word, and to rest. Um, you know, as, as Jesus says in the Scriptures, there are six other days you can be working. And checking off your to-do lists and running around like crazy ladies and crazy men. Um, but just just one day a week, that's all I'm asking. Uh, not because I need it. God does not need us to rest. He does not need us to worship him. He commands it because it's good for us. It makes us happy. And so I share this news with you, dear 10th graders of this Catholic school, that um, it, it's a mortal sin to miss Mass because... You, you don't want to miss it. You don't want to cut yourselves off from God. You don't want to, you know, let the, the lines of communication break down because this is what gives life and love and joy and beauty and truth and goodness and fulfillment, um, not just in the next life, but here and now. And they're like, yeah, 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 we get it. Okay. <laughs> year after year, I also had... Um, parents of my students say, whether it was at a back-to-school night where I would do like a mini lesson or, um, I don't know, an open house or just maybe in conversation uh, with the, the parents of my students, a number of them would say like, oh my gosh, I went through years and years of Catholic education and I never knew that. I never knew, you know, X, Y, and Z was a sin or I never knew that, you know, we are made for this or offered this by God. And so as a as a Catholic educator, I apologize to students everywhere for the, the times that we have, have failed you in teaching you the truth. And um, I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll give us each the truth. Uh, help us come to know the truth and love the truth in your good and perfect time. And, and if we missed it in Catholic education somewhere along the way, may, may we come to know it, Lord, uh, through some other, other venue. Let's say through a Catholic Light podcast. And so we offer the truth to others, not because we want to, you know, conquer the world with our Catholicism, um, but because we want to offer that which brings life to every human heart, whether Catholic or non-Catholic. This is, this is what we are all made for and what brings life to all of us. And so um, why hold back? Okay, we, we don't want to be standing at the pearly gates and have a trail of people behind us saying, like, you knew this and you didn't tell me you didn't share it with me like I could have been living this for so many more years um, and so may we have the grace and the boldness to share this with great charity and great joy if we skip down to paragraph 1862 then the catechism uh, makes some distinguishments distinguishings around venial sin one commits venial sin when in a less serious matter he does not observe the standard prescribed by the moral law or when he disobeys the moral law in a grave matter, but without full knowledge or without complete consent. So again, those three pieces have to be in place for something to be considered a mortal sin and for us to to cut ourselves off from the life of charity for this life with God. Um, I would also have students ask about the years like, okay, they loved playing like stump the theology teacher. Okay, so I commit a mortal sin. I'm cut off from my life with God or I'm cut off from 
the life of charity. How then do I receive the grace that brings me back to confession, which then brings me back into communion with God? Great question, students, and I'm so glad you're listening and paying attention and thinking profoundly about these great things. So the the mercy and grace of God, um, in a mysterious way, somehow extends even to those who have cut themselves off, and it's by his grace that we are then brought back to the sacrament, which then opens us up to receive Uh, his mercy and love and forgiveness and bring us back into a life of charity, a life with God. What is that one thing then that cannot be forgiven by God? Paragraph 1864 says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. If you look at the footnote there, um, there are three uh, three scripture passages referenced. Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. And then Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 29. Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verse 10. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. There are no limits to the mercy of God, but anyone who deliberately refuses to accept his mercy by repenting rejects the forgiveness of his sins and the salvation offered by the Holy Spirit. Such hardness of heart can lead to final impenitence and eternal loss. So what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? It's basically saying, God, you can't forgive me. Okay, whether that's um, whether the intention is one of pride, one of despair, um, one of extreme shame, where we're in this position of like, God, what I've done is so bad, you can't forgive me, or God, you can't forgive me. <laughs> I'm trying to make different intonations here. God, you can't forgive me. Um, then God, who respects our free will, says, okay, I can't forgive you. As long as you're in this position of God, you can't forgive me, then God says. I can't forgive you. I do not force my mercy and forgiveness upon you, and therefore I can't, as long as you're in this this stance, this disposition. Go back to or, or you know, zoom in on my students with these like wide eyes and look of horror, like, oh my gosh, what if I'm saying that, you know, how can God then forgive? Like, what if I then want him to forgive me? Well, I'll say, well, the good news is then the moment you say, God, forgive me, God enters in and forgives us, offers us his mercy and love. So it's that that moment, that stance where we're, we're in a position of, God, you can't forgive me. God cannot extend his forgiveness. But the moment we say, please, God, forgive me, then he enters in and, and forgives us. So it's that last line, such hardness of heart can lead to final, can lead to final impenitence and eternal loss. So if we persist in that stance, that disposition, that belief, God, you can't forgive me, you can't forgive me, you can't forgive me, uh, God forbid, we might end our lives still in that stance and then not receive ultimately the mercy and love, forgiveness of God. So sweet and merciful Jesus, may we not end our lives in that stance. May we always be open to your mercy and forgiveness. Okay, this brings us to a a quick lesson on the capital sins, which are referenced uh, towards the end of our reading selection today, paragraph 1866. Paragraph 1866 says, vices, so the opposite of virtues, can be classified according to the virtues they oppose or also be linked to the capital sins. Capital simply means head or like main, which Christian experience has distinguished following St. John Cashin and St. Gregory the Great. They are called capital because they engender other sins, other vices. They are pride, avarice, envy, wrath, lust, gluttony, and sloth or acedia. So here is Father Matt's great uh, discussion of the seven deadly sins and then the seven 
medicines that can heal these wounds. So pride he describes as the most insidious and deadliest disposition of all. Essentially, it is dishonesty about whatever. So pride is dishonesty. Oftentimes we think of someone who's prideful as like puffed up, arrogant, like I am the best and this is all because of me. That's dishonest because it's not all because of me. It's because of the grace of God and the gifts he has given me, which then by his grace I put into practice, I put to good use, Um, but it initially all came from God. It could also be a false humility, like, oh, nothing I do is, is that valuable. No, really, I'm not that great. No, no, please, you know, stop, stop with the compliments and the praise. Um, no, if you, if you have gifts, first we recognize that they're gifts, and then use them and share them. And don't say like, no, 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 I'm not gifted. I don't have anything to share or give. Like, that's, that's also dishonest. So the medicine for pride is honesty. Okay, recognizing that we are children of God. Every good and perfect gift, as the scriptures say, is from above. And uh, we, by the grace of God, receive them well, use them well, and it all points back to God. Um, but we, we recognize them as gift, and then we recognize that we have them. Uh, envy, Father Matt defines as being sad at the good fortune or moral excellence of another. It's rooted out by gratitude and admiration. So if you struggle with envy, pray for the gift of gratitude, the grace, the virtue to grow in of gratitude. Anger, which I think was listed in the catechism as wrath. It's an irrational desire for revenge. It's remedied by forgiveness. Uh, Sloth, different from, I worked with another priest, Father McCabe, who he would get like a little twitchy when people refer to it as sloth. He's like, no, sloth is the animal that slowly moves from a tree. Sloth is the capital sin, and it's the sin of indifference. It's an apathy toward the plight of others or truth itself, which leads to moral relativism. Zeal is its antidote or its medicine. Greed, which was listed as avarice, I think, in the catechism, is uh, wanting more than you need. So God gives us all that we need, um, and greed is to desire more than that, more than we need or could possibly use. Generosity helps us overcome greed. Gluttony, the desired, disordered desire for food and drink. Uh, like all evil, greed takes a good and perverts it. Moderation is the medicine here. Lastly, lust. Um, so we can substitute, so it's the same as gluttony, this disordered desire, but just substitute sex for food and drink. So a disordered desire for sex and then chastity is the solution so maybe as a little homework for this week we could take a look at the uh, or revisit the seven deadly sins and then think like okay and prayerfully consider what what might with which sin might I struggle and then pray for the grace to grow in the medicine the virtue that works against it so come Lord Jesus give us the grace to identify Uh, with which sin we might struggle most. And then please give us the grace to work on that virtue. Give us the antidote, the medicine to overcome this vice. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right, we'll end the first half of our episode here. Take a brief break and then return on the second half to read paragraphs 1833 through 1876. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. 
Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 1833 through 1876 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In brief, virtue is a habitual and firm disposition to do good. The human virtues are stable dispositions of the intellect and the will that govern our acts, order our passions, and guide our conduct in accordance with reason and faith. They can be grouped around the four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Prudence disposes the practical reason to discern in every circumstance our true good and to choose the right means for achieving it. Justice consists in the firm and constant will to give God and neighbor their due. Fortitude ensures firmness in difficulties and constancy in the pursuit of the good. Temperance moderates the attraction of the pleasures of the senses and provides balance in the use of created goods. The moral virtues grow through education, deliberate acts, and perseverance in struggle. Divine grace purifies and elevates them. The theological virtues dispose Christians to live in a relationship with the Holy Trinity. They have God for their origin, their motive, and their object. God known by faith, God hoped in and loved for his own sake. There are three theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity. They inform all the moral virtues and give life to them. By faith, we believe in God and believe all that he has revealed to us and that Holy Church proposes for our belief. By hope, we desire and with steadfast trust await from God eternal life and the graces to merit it. By charity, we love God above all things and our neighbor as ourselves for love of God. Charity, the form of all the virtues, binds everything together in perfect harmony. The seven gifts of the Holy Spirit bestowed upon Christians are wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. Article 8. Sin. Mercy and Sin. The gospel is a revelation in Jesus Christ of God's mercy to sinners. The angel announced to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The same is true of the Eucharist, the sacrament of redemption. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. God created us without us, but he did not will to save us without us. To receive his mercy, we must admit our faults. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As St. Paul affirms, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But to do its work, grace must uncover sin so as to convert our hearts and bestow on us righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Like a physician who probes the wound before treating it, God, by his word and by his spirit, casts a living light on sin. Conversion requires convincing of sin. It includes the interior judgment of conscience, and this being a proof of the action of the spirit of truth in man's, most, man's inmost being, becomes at the same time the start of a new grant of grace and love. Receive the Holy Spirit. Thus, in this convincing concerning sin, we discover a double gift— the gift of the truth of conscience, and the gift of the certainty of redemption. The spirit of truth is the consoler. That's Pope John Paul II. The definition of sin. Sin is an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. It is failure and genuine love of God, love for God and neighbor caused by a perverse attachment to certain goods. It wounds the nature of man and injures human solidarity. It has been defined as an utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law. Sin is an offense against God. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. Sin sets itself against God's love for us and turns our hearts away from it. Like the first sin, it is disobedience, a revolt against God through the will to become like God's, knowing and determining good and evil. Sin is thus love of oneself even to contempt of God. 
In this proud self-exaltation, sin is diametrically opposed to the obedience of Jesus, which achieves our salvation. It is precisely in the Passion, when the mercy of Christ is about to vanquish it, that sin most clearly manifests its violence and its many forms. Unbelief, murderous hatred, shunning and mockery by the leaders and the people, Pilate's cowardice and the cruelty of the soldiers, Judas's betrayal, so bitter to Jesus, Peter's denial and the disciples' flight. However, at the very hour of darkness, the hour of the prince of this world, the sacrifice of Christ secretly becomes the source from which the forgiveness of our sins will pour forth inexhaustibly. The different kinds of sin. There are a great many kinds of sin. Scripture provides several lists of them. The letter to the Galatians contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Now the works of the flesh are plain. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Sins can be distinguished according to their objects, as can every human act, or according to the virtues they oppose, by excess or defect, or according to the commandments they violate. They can also be classed according to whether they concern God, neighbor, or oneself. They can be divided into spiritual and carnal sins, or again as sins in thought, word, deed, or omission. The root of sin is in the heart of man, in his free will, according to the teaching of the Lord. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a man. But in the heart also resides charity, the source of the good and pure works which sin wounds. The gravity of sin, mortal and venial sin. Sins are rightly evaluated according to their gravity. The distinction between mortal and venial sin, already evident in scripture, became part of the tradition of the church. It is corroborated by human experience. Mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God who is his ultimate end and his beatitude by preferring an inferior good to him. Venial sin allows charity to subsist even though it offends and wounds it. Mortal sin, by attacking the vital principle within us, that is, charity, necessitates a new initiative of God's mercy and a conversion of heart, which is normally accomplished within the setting of the sacrament of reconciliation. When the will sets itself upon something that is of its nature incompatible with the charity that orients man toward his ultimate end, then the sin is mortal by its very object. Whether it contradicts the love of God, such as blasphemy or perjury, or the love of neighbor, such as homicide or adultery, but when the sinner's will is set upon something that of its nature involves a disorder, but is not opposed to the love of God and neighbor, such a thoughtless chat, excuse me, such as thoughtless chatter or immoderate laughter, and the like, such sins are venial. And that's St. Thomas Aquinas. For sin to be mortal, three conditions must together be met. Mortal sin is sin whose object is grave matter and which is also committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent. Grave matter is specified by the Ten Commandments, corresponding to the answer of Jesus to the rich young man. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. The gravity of sins is more or less great. Murder is graver than theft. One must also take into account who is wronged. Violence against parents is in itself graver than violence against a stranger. Mortal sin requires full knowledge and complete consent. It presupposes knowledge of the sinful character of the act, of its opposition to God's law. It also implies a consent sufficiently deliberate to be a personal choice. 
feigned ignorance and hardness of heart do not diminish, but rather increase the voluntary character of sin, of a sin. Unintentional ignorance can diminish or even remove the imputability of a grave offense. But no one is deemed to be ignorant of the principles of the moral law, which are written in the conscience of every man. The promptings of feelings and passions can also diminish the voluntary and free character of the offense, as can external pressures or pathological disorders. Sin committed through malice, by deliberate choice of evil, is the gravest. Mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom, as is love itself. It results in the loss of charity and the privation of sanctifying grace, that is, of the state of grace. If it is not redeemed by repentance and God's forgiveness, it causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell. For our freedom has the power to make choices forever, with no turning back. However, although we can judge that an act is in itself a grave offense, we must entrust judgment, judgment of persons to the justice and mercy of God. One commits venial sin when in a less serious matter he does not observe the standard prescribed by the moral law, or when he disobeys the moral law in a grave matter, but without full knowledge or without complete consent. Venial sin weakens charity. It manifests a disordered affection for created goods. It impedes the soul's progress in the exercise of the virtues and the practice of the moral good. It merits temporal punishment. Deliberate and unrepented venial sin disposes us little by little to commit mortal sin. However, venial sin does not break the covenant with God. With God's grace, it is humanly reparable. Venial sin does not deprive the sinner of sanctifying grace, friendship with God, charity, and consequently eternal happiness. While he is in the flesh, men cannot help excuse me, man cannot help but have at least some light sins. But do not despise these sins, which we call light. If you take them for light when you weigh them, tremble when you count them. A number of light objects makes a great mass. A number of drops fills a river. A number of grains makes a heap. What then is our hope? Above all, confession. That's St. Augustine. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. There are no limits to the mercy of God, but anyone who deliberately refuses to accept his mercy by repenting rejects the forgiveness of his sins and the salvation offered by the Holy Spirit. Such hardness of heart can lead to final impenitence and eternal loss. The proliferation of sin. Sin creates a proclivity to sin. It engenders vice by repetition of the same acts. This results in perverse inclinations which cloud conscience and corrupt the concrete judgment of good and evil. Thus, sin tends to reproduce itself and reinforce itself, but it cannot destroy the moral sense at its root. Vices can be classified according to the virtues they oppose, or also be linked to the capital sins which Christian experience has distinguished, following St. John Cashin and St. Gregory the Great. They are called capital because they engender other sins, other vices. They are pride, avarice, envy, wrath, lust, gluttony, and sloth or asadia. The catechetical tradition also recalls that there are sins that cry to heaven, the blood of Abel, the sin of the Sodomites, the cry of the people oppressed in Egypt, the cry of the foreigner, the widow and the orphan, injustice to the wage earner. Sin is a personal act. Moreover, we have a responsibility for the sins committed by others when we cooperate in them. By participating directly and voluntarily in them, by ordering, advising, praising, or approving them, by not disclosing or not hindering them when we have an obligation to do so, and by protecting evildoers. 
Thus, sin makes men accomplices of one another and causes concupiscence, violence, and injustice to reign among them. Sins give rise to social situations and institutions that are contrary to the divine goodness. Structures of sin are the expression and effect of personal sins. They lead their victims to do evil in their turn. In an analogous sense, they constitute a social sin. In brief, God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. Sin is an utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law. It is an offense against God. It rises up against God in a disobedience contrary to the obedience of Christ. Sin is an act contrary to reason. It wounds man's nature and injures human solidarity. The root of all sins lies in man's heart. The kinds and the gravity of sins are determined principally by their objects. To choose deliberately, that is, both knowing it and willing it, something gravely contrary to the divine law and to the ultimate end of man is to commit a mortal sin. This destroys in us the charity without which eternal beatitude is impossible. Unrepented, it brings eternal death. Venial sin constitutes a moral disorder that is reparable by charity, which it allows to subsist in us. The repetition of sins, even venial ones, engenders vices, among which are the capital sins. That brings us to the end of our reading selection, the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me for another week. Between this week and next week's episode, please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week, and in the meantime, God bless you.